Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, all, and welcome to the New Books Network Critical Theory Channel. I'm your host, Kendall Deneen, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Faluke Adebisi, an associate professor at the law school, University of Bristol. Her book, Decolonization and Legal Knowledge, Reflections on Power and Possibility, available for pre-order now through Bristol University Press, examines the nature of decolonization itself, as well as how legal knowledge is produced and how it can be unsettled or radically transformed by the work of legal scholars, both as educators and as researchers. Welcome, Dr. Adebisi. How are you today? I'm fine, Kendall. How are you? Very well. Thank you. I'm excited to have you here. So thank you for making the time. No worries. Um, so I wanted to get us started by having you um, just talk about this little quote that I, I saw from the, the very beginning of your book, right? The opening sentence. You state that the ideas in the book would not let you rest, and that's what led to writing the book. Um, and so I, I just was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and the process of writing the book. Okay. Um, so it's a very long journey writing this book, and I do have a particular reluctance towards writing academic books because I feel they're very inaccessible, especially hardcovers. Uh, they, they, they feel like weapons. Uh, but while I was doing my PhD, so I finished my PhD, if I can remember back that far, uh, probably in about 2012 uh, is when I finished my PhD. And one of the things I looked at then was the incomplete decolonization of post-colonial states in West Africa. So I had always been sort of concerned with that uh, particular topic of decolonization, but I was more focused on uh, how decolonization or incomplete decolonization affected political and legal structures. But um, in about 2015, with the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa, somehow that translated itself to UK higher education. And then we began to see this increase in requests for decolonization of everything. So decolonizing the university, decolonizing the curriculum. And it almost has become this sort of buzzword. And because I'd already worked in decolonization, I found that really unsettling because lots of what people were doing and saying almost turned away from my own understanding of decolonization. So I sort of started taking notes and trying to write stuff in in response to that. I wrote the first outline for the book in 2016, um, that far back. Uh, but I, again, because I don't like writing books, uh, I try to uh, sort of capture the arguments in chapters and articles and uh, my blog. But it just seems that everything I wanted to say had to be in long form. And so, you know, as I say in the book, I would scribble notes and go, this is what's going into chapter one. And in a way, it was still lots of hard work to write, but in a way made it easier because I was constantly thinking about how do I respond to this? It it was very much at the uh, forefront of my mind since 2016. And so what happened was, uh, I think it was in about, so it was 2020, and which was probably the worst time to start actually properly writing a book, is when I had a chat with my publisher and said, you know, I'm, 
it definitely has to happen. It's not, you know, it's it, it has been running around in my mind and needs to run out of my mind. And so uh, I did spend quite a lot of 2020 and 2021 just put my head down, write, go to work, sleep, eat. And so that's that's essentially uh, how, you know, how I wrote it, the actual physical um, sort of process of writing it. But I really wanted to go into that conceptual framework that I talk about in the book, uh, the concept of body, space, time, so that we can have sort of a deeper, more embedded, longer look at decolonization from uh, sort of a more temporal and spatial breadth and detail rather than the very sort of almost shallow piecemeal attempts at decolonization that were happening. Well, I appreciate you doing this thing that you don't, don't really care for too much. Um, the book for me was really, really helpful and I think will be in my dissertation. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're um, very welcome. <laughs> So you write in your book, uh, you write that your book is not an argument for decolonization and that, quote, the argument for decolonization lies in the structures of our world, end quote. Um, can you unpack this for us a little bit? So I think one of the core arguments that I'm making is that the histories and structures and logics of racialized enslavement and dispossessive decolonization have produced the current structures of the world, suffused as the world is in extreme inequality, climate change, and racial injustice. And I think the core for me here is that it is very difficult to try and convince people to say, you know, decolonize, where we haven't actually been able to properly uh, sort of deconstruct what that means. But it's, I find easier to say to people, are we satisfied with the way the world is? If it, if we're not, then we need to do something about it, especially as academics from within our different epistemologies. So I'm asking people to sort of try and connect how the very uh, present structures of the world are underpinned and underwritten by the histories of racialized enslavement and dispossessive colonization. And so I'm focusing on linking those two in the book and rethinking that structure, that fame framework of body, space, time through those histories and, you know, that connection to the present. Yeah, I thought when I was reading that, I was just really struck by it because, yes, everything that you're saying, you know, that the ways in which the world is, is yeah, structured to be so dissatisfying, to put it, you know, sort of lightly, right? Yeah, that is sort of the argument, right? Like, it's right there. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciated that. Um, so you also talk about how students' expectations of law school sort of differ from the reality of law school. Um, what expectations might students come into law school with that don't necessarily come to fruition there? And where might this disconnect come from? Yeah, so I think in writing that, I was thinking not only of uh, my students, uh, and I have been teaching for a while now, but also my own experience in law school and, you know, uh, the experience of people I went to school with. You know, lots of people, not everyone, because some people go to law school expecting that it's going to be a good career, make them lots of money. But other people go to law school and they they think of it as a, as a means through which they can do good in the world, through which they can, for example, fight for other people's human rights and uh, probably stop conflict and that sort of thing. And the minute you begin to study law and they often confront you in your first few years in law school with topics such as, you know, ownership of property and um, making contracts. And then you begin to see that the law 
or you begin to feel that the law is more concerned as a field, as a discipline with preserving structures of power. And that in itself, that, you know, just that alone is uh, is problematic. But there are other things that can, you know, contribute to this disconnect. Um, for example, the fact that there's so many sort of programs on television that tell you false stories about the law. I often ask my students in the first class, why are you studying law? And they go, well, we watched Suits and then we loved it. And then we thought <laughs> this is going to be, you know, uh, an interesting course of study. And I say there, there are two main things why Suits is not an, an accurate, accurate portrayal. I mean, the uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, small uh, reason would be you don't get to be a lawyer by carrying about a bag of weed. Uh, but the second one is how well the characters on Suits are dressed and that is not replicated in law schools. And very much what I'm trying to see on a more serious note in the book is how the discipline doesn't often reflect the realities that our students are living in. So racialized students who are subject to police brutality, stop and search, uh, who are who have um, um, post-colonial backgrounds, who are migrant, who have migrant backgrounds, children of refugees or refugees themselves who are gendered female or non-binary from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, dis uh, disabled students. They don't see the law in the way in which the law portrays itself in law schools. And I think there's something to be said about that and how, you know, on a almost broader scale, we're not reflecting reality in law schools. Thank you. So you say that those teaching and researching in law schools, this is on page two, um, you say can reimagine the cultivation of legal knowledge as the practice of freedom. What does this entail according to your book and what is the sort of promise? So the promise itself, I think it's, for me, it's almost a linguistic one. How do we define freedom? Because I think we tend to define freedom as the absence of confinement, but I want to through the process of the book, almost redefine our reality, the things that we feel that we can aspire to as a sort of as a discipline, but also as a, you know, as humanity. And I think for me, the practice of freedom is the ability to reimagine the possibilities that we can build together as a, a collective as a community, as a global community, as well as an intellectual community. Thank you. Why is it important for law schools and legal scholars to think globally or even in a planetary way, as you write so strikingly? Yeah, so I think it's just realistic. Um, we have, we have, you know, because the world the way which is structured, we've got these borders and we've come to accept that that's the only way in which we can live. But what, you know, so many things that we exist in now, so many sort of practices that we exist in now, so many things that happen, uh, what those things suggest to us is that borders are fictional. Um, for example, uh, the pandemic quite obviously showed that borders didn't do much for us. Uh, climate change because even with the pandemic, there are countries that shut down borders, but there's nothing you can do to climate change. You cannot, sh you know, uh, sort of uh, barricade the environment and the climate behind 
borders. And also you have things like the internet where people who are within the same country and not as close to each other as people who are in different countries because people are having conversations and building community on the internet. So the concept of borders um, is beginning to look like and should always have been, you know, should always have looked like an unrealistic uh, concept for us as humanity. So for me, it's important for law schools and legal scholars to think globally because that's the reality in which we're living. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think those examples are really powerful. Um, so on page seven, you write that legal knowledge in law schools not only denies bodies and space time, but fundamentally denies its own ontology. I thought this was really fascinating. So what is that ontology and how does this denial of ontology happen and what are the consequences of this? So when I say uh, the law denies its own ontology, it goes back to what I was saying about how law students presume that the law is this sort of uh, tool for doing good only. And that's not to say the law cannot do good. But the fact that law has always been allied with power and power has mostly the way in which power has been used in the world has been coercive, has been destructive. And there's something about the current nature of the law. And that's not to close off its sort of further future possibilities. But the current nature of the law and the way in which it's allied with power means that the law has often acted in destructive ways, especially across human hierarchies, different ways that humanity has, through the workings of power and law, created these lots of unjust hierarchies. And so what I want people to think about is how law reform is not sufficient to actually address this ontology. So what tends to happen is we go, okay, let's make more laws but you're making laws with this ontology without changing the ontology. So what what often happens is that nothing really changes. Um, You know, a few examples or one or two examples is with the, uh, and this is international law, with the decolonization of what we call the flag independence of post-colonial states. The relationship between those post-colonial states and the uh, states that colonize them doesn't change just by, you know, the change in the form or the change in the, of the content of the law. We need to change the very format and structure uh, of uh, how those interrelations work and how the law props them up and what the law is to actually make any change, any uh, efficient, effective change within the law. Thank you. I just did an interview recently with um, Lee Goodmark on her book, um, Imperfect Victims, which was talking about changes in American laws, I think in the 70s and 80s with domestic violence that were, were supposed to, you know, reforms, right? That were supposed to give mm. victims access to the criminal legal system. And it's just really resulted in an explosion of incarceration of those people. So it was really interesting to read your book right after her book and see, oh yes, like um, it, her book is sort of zooming in on this particular thing, right? And then I felt like your book gave me, um, yeah, this like broader, more global sort of understanding of- yeah the problems of like reform and not really reckoning with that ontology of law. So I really appreciate it. I feel like my, my brain is, is expanding right now. It's great. Uh, Which is always good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I think this leads us nicely into this point that you make about how decolonizing the curriculum or decolonizing the law school has become what you say is like a term of art. So if you could explain that a little bit, what do you mean by that? 
So what I'm saying is, and you know, like I said, and you know, it was really around 2015 uh, till now, the phrase decolonize the curriculum uh, has almost taken up quite a lot of space in UK higher education. And not just in UK higher education, but, you know, this is where I live and work. So uh, I can talk to that. And it seems that there's a presumption that we all understand what we're trying to say. So people will go, well, I'm decolonizing my curriculum. And what some people are doing is that they're adding a few sort of racialized scholars. You know, uh, one student said to me, half of a slide of a slide uh, in, in a lecture, and they've added a few things. And then that's that's decolonizing their curriculum. And some people are completely overturning their curricula, but there's no change to the discipline itself or there's no change to the university. So it's it's almost as if there's a, you know, just by saying we're decolonizing our curriculum, there's a label we're putting on our actions without actually interrogating those actions. And what then happens is those actions are completely divorced from the origins of the term decolonization. And most of the time what's happened is a little bit of diversity work is being done and it's not very, it doesn't go uh, to enough depth, it's very shallow. And so this is what I call decolonizing X and everyone sort of seems to sort of stamp decolonization onto something like decolonizing the museum uh, where museums contain, you know, the remains of, uh, uh, you know, the dead bodies of formerly colonized peoples and what they're doing by decolonizing the museum is to put a label saying, you know, explaining where the artifact is from, from, but no one's returning them or sort of interrogating the power imbalances in being able to keep other people's property. Um, so there's a misunderstanding with that decolonizing the curriculum or decolonizing X that I'm trying to ask people to think a little bit deeper about, especially connected to the origins of decolonization. Thank you. Um, could you explain this? Uh, you talk about the the colonization slash decolonization interrelation, um, which I thought was really fascinating. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the things I'm trying to do with, you know, by saying the colonization, decolonization interrelation is to trouble people's uh, sort of presumptions around the idea that uh, colonization and decolonization are temporarily consecutive. So colonization happens, it's embedded, and then after it's settled, uh, decolonization happens, and then everything's sort of uh, ended at that point, and everything's fine, essentially. But what I want people to think about is how their logics of colonization that uh, are responded to by decolonization, and colonization or colonialism's logic doesn't end with that response. It evolves, it renews itself. And so decolonization's logics has to renew itself. So it's more of a push and pull, if you will. If colonialism is ongoing, it, the response to it is also continually ongoing. And what we have in the world today is not, you know, while we may describe, uh, I think it's Annabel Kihana who describes uh, coloniality as the most dominant form of, you know, power relations today, it doesn't mean that there's no response to it from below, but that all of that is ongoing. I think that leads really well into my next question. So in uh, one of the chapters, you give a sort of history of 
the way that colonialism has functioned in different areas and how that sort of in, informed, if I'm reading this correctly, informed, you know, decolonial responses, which totally makes sense. Um, and so you're charting these sort of differences. So if you could tell us like what has decolonization been and what are the sort of place specific forms or methods or histories of decolonization that you trace? I think it's chapter one that you do this. Yeah. So that's my first chapter. And I try and use some sort of analogy uh, with, you know, to describe decolonization. And I think what I was, one of the things that has often been problematic in this discourse in this area is people will sort of pull you up and say, so define decolonization. And you go, well, I can't do that in five, you know, five seconds or, you know, one minute, how, however much time uh, has been given to me. And one of the problems, one of the reasons why we find decolonization difficult to define is because the way in which the colonial structure works in different places is different. And if we want to connect decolonization as a word, uh, its meaning, our understanding of it, to its origins, its history, then we need to connect it to these different places where colonialism has played out in different ways. So I use four different contexts. And those contexts, as I say, they're overlapping and they're incomplete, but that's just the nature of writing an 80,000 word book is that you cannot actually uh, sort of cover everything that really exists. So I uh, look at settler states, non-settler states, so post-colonial states in Africa and Asia. Um, I look at um, I look at the Latin American critical decolonial school slightly differently from settler states because the logics of decolonization are slightly different there. And then I look at uh, imperial uh, sort of metropoles, uh, mostly you know where I'm based in the United Kingdom is uh, kind of my focus. And what I'm saying with that is that we need to understand that the forms, methods and histories of decolonization respond to the forms, methods and histories of coloniality or colonialism. So in settler states where the form of de- uh, of colonization or colonialism is to uh, annihilate or disappear the indigenous, then the response to that is to reinstitute or reinstate the sovereignty of indigenous peoples. In non-settler states where the form of uh, colonization has been to create colonies uh, and then say, well, you're you're independent now, you're fine, but still have that power over what they do, what they say, their epistemologies, then the response to that has been to um, sort of think about how to unpack those power imbalances and to also think about um, empire and how difficult it is to decolonize from the heart of empire. And then with the Latin American critical school, I look at some of the authors and the academics and the writings from that and how they have moved from a post-developmental critique into a, you know, critique of uh, using sort of uh, questions of pluriversity and multiversity to suggest that there are different ways of thinking in the world, so they use the phrase worlds otherwise. And so what I sort of conclude is it's difficult to just to define decolonization because decolonization is not one thing. It's a set of strategies that different people in different places have taken up to respond to how they experience uh, colonialism as a sort of macro structure. I really appreciate the work of that chapter. It's just so richly informative. So thank you. 
Um, so, you know, part of the book is talking about like what ac academics can do differently, right? And particularly legal scholars, but I think academics as a whole as well. Um, so how do you recommend that academics participate in decolonization and what pitfalls should we be aware of and avoid? So I think the first thing for academics is, and you know, we're academics, so this shouldn't be too difficult for us, is to read. Um, and, and I think this is one of the uh, almost it's a hurdle that I have to get over because academics will ask me, so what should we do? And they want me to tell them to sort of do this, do this and do this uh, and then tick those boxes. And I think it should be a work that we all conceive of together rather than uh, sort of uh, tick certain boxes. I think uh, it's important that decolonization uh, is, uh, is understood as an invitation to be autocritical. So once we've done the reading, then we need to go, so what do I know and what should I be doing? But also knowing that everything we do may not be right, because I think there's a tendency to go, so I've done the reading and this is what I must do. And then when we do it, if it's not right, if we're criticized, we go, but you know, I'm in this work and why are you criticizing me? Um, so to be able to have that freedom of mind to continue to work towards uh, sort of new ideas to in this quest for this new world. Um, but there are sort of three key things I often ask academics to think about relating what they do to the, you know, the definition or the definitions of decolonization. So first they have to understand that decolonization is a refusal. So what one of the things we need to avoid doing is trying to fit in what we're doing to the structures we're trying to refuse. So if it's a refusal and we go, well, this is what decolonization is inviting us to do. It's not decolonization if it doesn't refuse, right? So it's a refusal, but also as a sort of um, optimistic uh, offering, decolonization allows us or invites us to use our imagination. And that's kind of what I go on to talk about in the other chapters is, if everything that we, or almost everything we know is conceptually uh, emerges from this, from this history, then we can imagine different histories beyond that. And so we can imagine our disciplines differently. The idea that everything within our discipline or our disciplinary methods or dictates have to be obeyed, first that's against the, you know, the, the very idea of the refusal but it doesn't allow us to use our imagination. So academics have to be imaginative. And we must also understand that decolonization is not something we discovered. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a tendency for us to want to take a lay claim uh, of uh, anything that we work with in the university. And it's very much, you know, this, you put your name to an article and then it becomes, you know, your, almost your own copyright. So to understand that decolonization as an ongoing uh, sort of structure of life has happened way or has started happening way before we ever sort of appeared on the scene and will probably continue after we have left. And I think that gives us sort of scope for humility in how we engage with the very concept that we're trying to, you know, sort of work with. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this question that you pose in chapter two, which is how tainted is legal knowledge by the process through which it emerged? 
So what I'm thinking about in chapter two, and chapter two is it's one of the most difficult things I've ever written because I do love the law. Um, I've practiced it for quite a long time, but to then go through a long history of the ways in which law has been used in very brutal ways. So uh, the fact that legal knowledge has used has been used to legitimate dispossession, genocide, racialized enslavement, over exploitation of the earth. We have to think carefully about how we change the nature of the law from that. And I'm saying that, I'm asking readers to consider the possibility that there's something in the nature of the law that makes it almost easier for it to do those things than to protect the earth and people. And that's something we need to, you know, to think about carefully in our engagement with decolonization, that uh, it's that there's something that emerges from these uses that makes it insufficient, that makes the law insufficient to answer human and planetary needs. Thank you. Um, so I want to move into chapter three, which for me, this was the chapter I was like, oh man, I can't wait to use this. <laughs> it was very impactful for me in thinking about my own project. Um, and so I was hoping you could talk uh, sort of broadly about this, the argument of this chapter um, and your sort of unpacking of like how the body is sort of central to these colonizing projects and logics. Yeah, I mean, again, that was also a difficult chapter to write, to be honest. Um, and it, it also reflects my own teaching here in the law school at the University of Bristol. So I teach in you know, a couple of units, some to do with health law, uh, some around the relationship between law and race. I think the central argument, if I was to try and define the central argument of that chapter, is that the law has created a narrow lens to see the human, almost to not see the human. So if we consider or accept that every human discipline takes a position in relation to the human, so almost has a standard of humanity, tries to define humanity, there has to be um, <clears throat> some understanding of the histories from which these disciplines emerged. Uh, the law is a very, very old discipline, and it emerged at a time when the standard of humanity was the white European property-owning uh, heterosexual man. And law is a tool of social order, right? So it's built around uh, the totality of structured human interrelationships, but only recognizing certain humans in those interrelationships. And then what becomes of those other humans? And then I sort of introduce the concepts of uh, biopolitics and necropolitics there. So not only have we got humans who are outside the lens of the law, but we have a problem for the law for what it does with those humans who are outside uh, this lens. So the concept of racialization explains how the law deals with or how almost society, global society has dealt with that problem. And that is to put certain humans as beyond the protection of the law, such that they can be used in these coercive ways like racialized enslavement or their you know, dispossession of their property, indigenous dispossession or colonization of their, of their land. And the other ways in which the law then uses or instrumentalizes these humans that the law cannot see is to make them disposable 
So, and that's Achille uh, Mbembe's uh, concept of necropolitics, essentially who can live and who can die determined by uh, the sovereign. So by making these uh, bodies disposable, instrumentalized and in proximity to premature death, the law props up a structure of the world that isn't able to sort of protect life and not just human life, but all life on the planet. Thank you. Um, so on page 68, you talk about how Euromodern law thinks about equality as achieved through protected characteristics, um, and you critique this. Can you sort of uh, rehearse this critique for the listener? What are the opportunities that your critique sort of makes possible? So there's something that has always troubled me about the concept of protected characteristics, especially the way in which they're explained or set out uh, in law. So say, for example, in the Equality Act uh, 2010, which is uh, the equality legislation in the United Kingdom, race is a protected characteristic and it is defined in relation to skin color or ethnic origin. But it doesn't really appreciate the social uh, political history of the emergence of race or the idea that race is this uh, sort of uh, hierarchy. Now, going back to the point of, uh, you know, if the standard of our discipline is the white European property owning um, heterosexual, uh, heterosexual man, how then do we explain that what is protected is the other side of this, when history tells us that that is not what is protected? And secondly, which is the point I was making earlier, if the law doesn't, so pieces of legislation and case law doesn't actually unpack that, so unpack race, for example, unpack the idea that there's a hierarchy embedded in our understanding of race, uh, there's a hierarchy in us saying that race is important now, often means that people who are racialized non-white have some question of justice or injustice that they are bringing to the law. But where the question is only around people who are racialized white, we're no longer interested in the questions of race. So I'm saying that what we call protected characteristics are identified by the fact that those characteristics for those who find themselves on the other side of the line drawn are unprotected. Those people are unprotected and they're also identified in the abstract. And what the problem that makes or the uh, the problem that presents for law is that it, we're basically deceiving ourselves by saying these people are protected because what happens or what it reveals is that these are groups of people who are unprotected by the law. So they're people that the law cannot see because you've got the, the law has created this narrow lens. So the question, you know, so the opportunity that that critique presents is to question ourselves as to whether we widen the lens of the law or do we create other ways for the law to see human beings rather than sort of almost legal persons. Thank you. <clears throat> Um, you write on page 81 that the divisions of humans into racial and other categories functions to identify humans slash bodies which can be and are exploited for the benefit of capitalism and to identify populations structurally coded for death. Um, and you you write, you sort of follow this with this, this um, 
there is a, a question if from within colonial logics and using your modern legal knowledge, is it possible to reconstitute the version, the vision of the human slash body to produce testamentary life? Um, yeah. What is the kind of answer to this question that you give us in the book? Well, I don't really, if, if I had an answer, probably if I had a very clear answer, um, I would have written it in the book, but I think, what the question is inviting us to consider is that if the law cannot see life, then it becomes problematic for us to try and use the law to protect life, so human life and all uh, other life on the planet. And what the, or the other thing the question is thus uh, uh, sort of inviting us to think about is we must understand the problem. The problem is not just law reform and sort of recognizing that, you know, race and racism are problems, but that the law itself has some limitations, inadequacies, what it cannot see. And therefore, we must turn our gaze inward to the law rather than outward to people that we have almost sort of uh, made pathological. So it's to understand the problem, but also to, to go back to my concept of, you know, using our imagination. Uh, taking account of extra textual sources, maybe we need to think beyond the law. Maybe the law is not sufficient to understand, you know, or to see uh, who counts as human. And if the law hasn't made itself by design sufficient to see the human, then what else can we use to see the human? What other sources of knowledge beyond law and Euro modern law can give us uh, this sort of vision of protecting, seeing the human? Because you have to see the human first to protect the human. And when I say the human, it's the human in all, in all its complexity and beauty and possibility and opportunity that the law cannot see. It's just such a powerful, yeah, a powerful question to probe. So thank you. <laughs> Um, it, moving on to chapter four, you sort of, um, my understanding is you're sort of under uh, extending your argument from uh, the previous chapter about how colonial logics and the law designated certain bodies as property to talk about how the land itself is transformed into property and how this allows colonizers to take more than they are given. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this for us? So the um chapter four follows on, you know, from chapter three, as one would expect. But I think the argument also follows on, and I initially intended to write them as one uh, single chapter, but slightly ran away from me. Um, but it's this idea, or it's it's a response to the idea that we almost presume that land is property. That's the way in which we think about it. We don't, we don't uh, sort of uh, trouble the idea in any way. And this becomes problematic when, for example, we're talking about, you know, land restitution, returning land to indigenous peoples. And this it's it becomes an inexact practice because what was received from indigenous peoples was not property. And therefore, thinking of returning land in ways of sort of reparation or thinking through compensation gives a particular property value to land. But to think about the origins of or the process through which land becomes property, so the um, dispossession of indigenous peoples across the world in different ways. So in the Americas, in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, in New Zealand, 
the different ways in which indigenous people were sort of moved off from their land. And when I say moved off, um, I'm talking about genocides, I'm talking about brutality, I'm talking about sort of dislocation and dispossession. <clears throat> so um, I'm thinking here about, you know, I, how at that particular point where you have the indigenous people on the land, they've got a particular relationship to land. And the land for them is not property in the way in which your modern law sees the land as property. And then the, the relationship between colonizers in different forms and different guises changes when they become the owners of the land and the land becomes a source of profit for them. And therefore, the indigenous people cannot sort of lay claim to that land anymore because uh, the relationship they had with the land has been completely disrupted or removed. But I also want people to think about the reasons why the indigenous peoples were moved off of their land. So one of them is that they were not using their land in the ways recognized by Euromodern law. But why were those ways sort of unrecognized and that goes back to the questions of racialization. So the land becomes property because race itself, uh, and Cheryl Harris makes this wonderful argument in whiteness as property, uh, race itself operates as a sort form of property. So the logics of racialization as making property through the processes of racialized enslavement are also translated into the processes by which the land is made property. Uh, and Brenda Banner makes this sort of lovely uh, sort of argument about how the very same sort of language and logics and linguistics of racialization are produced in the uh, processes of property making. So there's very little sort of distinction between racialization and property making. And therefore, we must understand sort of the global structure of the world and who gets to own what and who gets, you know, whose labor has value as sort of uh, evolved and produced from that history of both racialization as property making, but dispossession of land and also dispossession of land as property making. So you conclude this chapter by asking if there is a place for legal knowledge in a borderless world, which I think is such a fascinating question. Um, could you sort of talk us through this question and um, and yeah, how you're sort of unpacking it, working through it? So I'm st I'm still working through that one because it's it's a big question and because it it requires uh, thinking of different ways of being in the world, and it goes back to my point about. We have to think on planetary scales because climate change, the internet, pandemics suggest that that is how we actually exist. And also to sort of from within that chapter, if we want to sort of think of decolonization in our relation to land as property and racialization as property, that's a refusal of those logics, then every border that we have has been produced by those logics. And therefore, a refusal of those logics leads to a refusal of borders. But where does that take us? Um, so that takes us, I don't have an answer to that, but that takes us into imagining what 
possibilities that refusal could lead us to. And that's uh, things like freedom of movement, different types of communities, uh, uh, you know, the idea that people uh, are not left to drown in the Mediterranean just because they're racialized differently, but also that people who uh, have their artifacts stolen can go and get them because they're not in different countries, uh, because we we live in a borderless world. So there are lots of possibilities. I suggest that opens it also opens up governments to think differently at the bound about the boundaries of their responsibility. It's such a wonderful question, and I just appreciate being um, invited to think about it. And I'm excited that others who are reading your book are going to be invited to think about it as well. Um, can you explain how Euro-modern legal knowledge, this is a quote, Euro-modern legal knowledge is heavily reliant upon time and temporality to make its meanings? This part of your argument was so fascinating to me and something I'd certainly <laughs> never thought of before. Um, so if you could talk about that a bit and, and how does this impact legal scholars and law students? Yeah, so that this was a very interesting chapter for me to write. And it really revolves around something I've been thinking of for quite a long time and that's how almost the let's say the law or almost the structure of the world holds on to these inequalities why do they persist so why is it that at the end of racialized enslavement across the world we don't get to a position where there's racial equality uh why is it that at the end of flag independence what we call decolonization uh, countries in what is designated the global south do not become equal. And I think for me, or the argument I'm making there is law's relationship to time and temporality, which is mostly often silent. So, you know, law's relationship to the body that I talk about in chapter three, I think it's it, it's a bit silent, but it's a bit overt as well. Law's relationship to land is easier to see. But law's relationship to time and temporality is not as tangible. So what I'm thinking about here is, and um, I say that Euromodern law is the keeper of colonial time. And in essence, what that means is Euromodern law keeps us in the loop of the uh, colonial ever present or in what I call present continuous colonial time. So the law holds on to logics of dispossession, instrumentalization, and subjectification by drawing boundaries, which is almost counterintuitive. So you, you've got the post-colonial, the logics don't change, and we're meant to forget everything that has happened before. And what, what then happens is we revisit, we almost go back to those uh, sort of logics, we Sort of reinfuse those logic, but logics, but with, uh, as I often say, with better devices. So we use uh, iPhones and Androids, but we're still in the logics of dispossession. Uh, and you know, using that example, uh, sort of almost calls to mind the the idea or the fact that our iPhones, our computers, everything is uh, they're reliant on running uh, on resources from what is now known as the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And if you think about the history of the DRC itself, it is a long history of colonial dispossession. So the colonial dispossession is continuing. Uh, I also use the case of re Southern Rhodesia. There are lots of cases that sort of demonstrate this. Uh, the case of re Southern Rhodesia that was decided in 1919. And what 
happen in that case is you've got indigenous peoples uh, from what was then called Southern Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe. Uh, in, so they had been dispossessed of their land and then they said, well, we want it back. It's, you know, it was our land. And uh, Chief Justice Sumner says, well, you can't get it back because the way in which you held land is primitive. It's in the past. And we need to then bring you into the future, not by giving you back your land, but by dispossessing you, right? Um, and what I say that moment, apart from, you know, the actual sort of factual dispossession, what that does is to cast the indigenous people, the people, uh, the Mashona Matabele people into the past in the eyes of the law. And the people who own the land now are cast into the future. So there's a temporal disjuncture happening there. And then to think about, so how that then relates to the present, we still have questions of land restitution happening in Zimbabwe that in our conversations, especially in what is designated the global north, we don't relate them to Southern Rhodesia. And by doing that, we don't sort of, we, and that's what I mean by the law creating these fragments of time, by creating these barriers of time, is that the logics can be revisited without question. And so we are kept in this colonial ever-present or present continuous colonial time because the logics do not change, but they are kept behind. Or when they when they were used in the in, in, in the past, in what we consider to be the past, they were kept behind these boundaries in the present. And therefore in the present, they can be revisited without question. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you so much for unpacking that. Yeah. Um, so in chapter six, you return to this question of the phrase decolonize the legal curriculum or decolonize the law. And you write that you prefer instead to ask what the political project of decolonization means for our curricula, research and related activity in law schools and the practice of law beyond them. What is the argument um, that you're making which has come from this question of the political project of decolonization and legal knowledge. So it's a long way around from uh, the introduction where I say, you know, uh, I want to sort of trouble this term of uh, decolonizing the curriculum. I'm saying that we cannot just decolonize the curriculum. We have to recognize, you know, what I talk about in the first chapter, decolonization has a history. And for law, law has a history in relationship to racialized enslavement and uh, dispossessive colonization, which has resulted in this structure of body uh, space time. Therefore, if we unpack all of these things, then what we do or what we should do is to not just go, okay, I'm going to put a few racialized scholars in my reading. What we must do is to question everything, to question how what we're doing actually serves as a reproduction of the colonial ever present and to question how what we can do can sort of stop that in its tracks, knowing that this is heavy work, right? This is this is long-term work, but it's also necessary work because we are a planet in jeopardy. We are in danger of destroying each other as well as the planet. Therefore, it is necessary work. And that's what I mean by that question. What, what we are doing in our discipline, in our research, in our teaching, in you sort of 
our university life and academic life and institutional life? How does it contribute to reproducing the colonial ever-present and how does it contribute to interrupting it? I think this feeds really nicely into this next question, which is, you know, your end your conclusion, um, the end of the conclusion has this really striking title that I just love, um, which is another university is necessary to take us towards pluriversal worlds. Can you sort of sum up this final message for us um, and talk a little bit about why you chose this title as sort of our our final message from, from you? Yeah, so what I chose the title because I um I ran out of space. So it was <laughs> I, I I felt that I was going to write a whole other book with the <laughs> with that title because I was trying to critique the university and go, well I've run out of space here. So I'm just going to leave you know readers with this message. But it's essentially this idea that everything I've talked about has been about the law school and the limits to what the law school can do where it's placed within a neoliberal university. And they're always, and you know, if you're in any university department, the university is telling you to do things like, you know, recruit more students or don't recruit any more students or uh, teach nine to five or don't teach nine to five. So they're sort of lots of messages, lots of um, sort of directives, lots of dictates that you have to obey while you're still trying to sort of turn the world upside down through the project of decolonization. So what I'm saying is thinking about the role of the university historically and presently, and I, you know, it's a constant that we must always think beyond the boundaries that Euromodernity has set for us. We need to think about what the university has been in history and what it currently is and whether or not it's su uh, sufficient or adequate space to produce the blueprints for, you know, the new worlds or worlds uh, otherwise. Is the current structure sufficient to do or to answer human and planetary needs? If it isn't, then another university is necessary to take us towards pluriversal worlds. Thank you. Um, so my final question is, you know, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners about your work? Maybe what you're going to be working on, I don't know, now or like in the future. Um, it sounds like you've you've got some work ahead of you already sort of in mind. Yes, I do. I do. I mean, the work on continuing this chapter or the book will uh, probably take place maybe in, <clears throat> uh, in a few years time I'm going to let it percolate a bit but currently I am uh, working on an edited collection is actually due on the 1st of May I think um, and what we've asked uh, sort of our contributors to think about is how they teach different bits uh, sort of different law units or law subjects like land law criminal law and how they then try and embed decolonization and anti-racism into their work and it's a very interesting collection uh, that we have put together and we've got contributions from um, Canada, Ireland, the UK, Australia, Samoa, so it's a really uh, South Africa so we've got a really nice collection put together and that's the next thing that should be coming out uh, from me. Um, I'm also working on um, a couple of articles uh, one on jurisprudence of the future. So I'm trying to use science fiction to answer those questions about how, so how do we interrupt this uh, present continuous colonial time? Um, but also a third article, I need to get some rest, don't I? <laughs> a third article on uh, Anthropocene judgments 
and and thinking of what you know flipping the script what would happen if uh the sea judged uh humanity for climate change and pollution and that uh it's it's a very uh sort of mind bending project at the moment because then i have to question all the structures of law that we're used to and all the meanings of law that we're used to so we'll see how far uh that one uh goes but i continue to sort of try and put these ideas you know first on my blog and I'm, i've started a podcast which we'll see how that goes as well Oh, that's awesome. I will have to give it a listen. And I'm very excited to read um, your future work. So thank you again for, for making time for the interview. And just, uh, I really appreciated having the opportunity to to think through, you know, the, the provocations of your work. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you, Kendall.